a very humbling journey, but I'm really happy to, you know, have arrived at a better place and have learned these skills through CCI. It's just a, a tremendous gift. Welcome to the Health Pilots podcast presented by the Center for Care Innovations. This podcast is about strengthening the health and well-being of historically underinvested communities. Every episode offers new ideas and practical advice that you can apply today. This episode was adapted from a webinar featuring participants of Catalyst, CCI's award-winning human-centered design training program. Human-centered design, also known as design thinking, is an approach to problem-solving that is rooted in understanding people's needs and experiences. Our longtime Catalyst collaborator, Chris Conley, dives into how this community of innovators are leading strategic efforts to transform the systems that support historically underinvested populations. Today we have Blake Gregory, who's the medical director at Alameda Health System. She's been in the Catalyst program. She's been a coach and regularly shares at the Catalyst program the new things she's doing, applying the Catalyst methods at Alameda Health. And so we thought having her here and sharing some of her experience would be great for you guys, give you some ideas, and obviously open it up for questions at the end for Blake. So with that, I'll ask Blake to go ahead and introduce yourself and maybe start with the journey you talked about a little bit earlier, and then we'll get into the ways you're using human-centered design. But welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. It's great to have you here today. Sure. Thanks. I'm super excited to join this group. Chris had asked me to kind of give a little bit of an intro or background about how I got into, into design thinking. And so I'm a physician. I've been at my organization for almost six years now. Um, and it was my first like real job out of my training. So um, I'm a medical director. And I'll just kind of talk about how I got started on my leadership journey and the things I've learned. So what I was telling Chris is that, you know, culturally, the sort of culture of medicine and, and medical training is um, pretty hierarchical. So when I reflect back on my days as a med student and then as a resident, the sort of model of success and the things that I think we were taught to look up to is this sort of top-down approach. And so, you know, the way it usually works is like the senior most person, the one with the most experience calls all the shots, does all the teaching. And so very top down. Um, And I think there are good reasons for that. You know, like you don't want to be in the middle of an emergency doing a code blue and turn to the nurse and be like, well, what do you think we should do? Like somebody has to take charge. But, you know, when I think about my role models for leaders, coming up in my medical training, that that's sort of what it was. It was like somebody's just making the decisions, you know, figuring out what the best thing to do is. So, you know, when I was done with my training, I took my first job here at Alameda Health System. And um, I was brought on as the associate med director for this clinic. And I was recruited by my friend, um, Paula Babaria, who's also a Catalyst graduate. So she was the medical director. And the plan was, you know, I was going to start on July 1st as the associate medical director. Paula was pregnant. And so she was going to be due in like a month or two after I started. So the plan was I'd kind of get my sea legs, learn the ropes, and then she'd have her baby and I'd run the show for a few months. So that all seemed okay. And then the, like literally the, the fifth day I showed up for work, Paula went into labor early. And so suddenly, you know, I didn't even know where the bathrooms were, but I was expected to lead this clinic that takes care of, you know, 8,000 patients. We've got 
70 providers. Like it was, you know, a lot. And um, so I, I just sort of jumped in with like the best leadership skills that I had. And so I would show up to these division meetings bringing my A-game like all prepared with a plan. And I'd come and be like, okay, here's my problem statement and here's what we're going to do. And um, that didn't go over very well, actually. <laughs> and it was sort of like pitchforks. Like, you know, these are people who have been in this organization for 30 years. They really know the system and I had no clue. And, you know, so I, I was using the best tools that I had, but um, I was not remotely human-centered. And I was just trying to like, you know, be a good resident. So I think that was a big aha moment for me was coming to these meetings and, you know, presenting something fully packaged and it just didn't work. So um, I was really fortunate. Paul did the Catalyst program and then encouraged me to apply. And then, you know, um, our team got accepted. We did a lot of work that we're really proud of. But that's sort of my leadership journey was just learning like the model that I came up with of like bringing your A-game, always knowing the right answers really doesn't work in the real world. And what people really want is to be engaged. They want to partner with you. They often have better solutions and answers than you do, even if you're in a leadership role. So it's a very humbling journey, but I'm, I'm really happy to you know, have arrived at a better place and have learned these skills through CCI. It's just a, a tremendous gift. Nice. So that's awesome. I love that you share that story. Because it it is one of getting humbled, right? It's like, holy cow, this doesn't work how I thought it might work. Can you say a little bit about... So when you did go through Catalyst and started learning a more collaborative approach, more tangible approach, how did that feel? Did you initially reject it or did it make, tend to make sense for you? Or how? what was it like learning initially? I think for me, right off the bat, I was like, this feels right. Like This makes sense just from my learned experience and like all the mistakes that I made. It totally resonated. And, um, you know, I think it also suits my personality. I, I'm like a big believer in Myers Briggs. Um, I know not everybody is, but uh, my personality type is, you know, pretty spontaneous. Like, you know, and I, I'm okay with the journey that's not completely linear. And I'm okay starting a process without knowing exactly what it's, how it's going to end. So that appeals to me. And it's not, that's not to say that people who have a different personality type that this wouldn't work for them. But I actually liked the sort of like seeding of control, just sort of letting go and surrendering to the process and just seeing where we end up. So I think that actually works really well for me. It fits my style. Yeah, I definitely think... I mean, we saw it with you and Catalyst and we see it all the time. Sometimes some, some people, the approach just resonates from the beginning. They have a certain knack for it or personality type for it. If they've come up and been exposed to design or you know, the artistic process of kind of finding the answer in the work you do versus having the answer and then doing the work. Yeah, it resonates a little bit more. It's a little bit easier to kind of be open to the the change in pace from a typical corporate uh, approach to problem solving. Yeah. Even for me, it's a little anxiety provoking to be like, oh my gosh, I have so much data. What am I going to do with this? Where is this going to go? But, you know, you just have to kind of surrender to it. Yeah. It doesn't mean the work's easier or that you're not getting like uh, stress about, oh, we got to figure this out. We got to figure this out. But you're swimming in the data and swimming in the, in the problem solving a little bit more versus portraying a false confidence about yeah. what you're going to go do. And that really allows the, I think, a better solution to emerge. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Can you share real quickly what your project was for Catalyst? So we um, were looking at workplace happiness. 
Okay. And, um, you know, I think we, like many healthcare organizations, struggle with morale and engagement, absenteeism, turnover. And so we spent our project trying to understand that and really got in the weeds. I think what we learned is that people work really hard in our clinic and um, they really care a lot. They do amazing work and we do not do a good job recognizing them. So our project was, we called it No Good Deed Goes Unnoticed. It was like, we had these like little monopoly bills that we sprinkled throughout clinic. And anytime somebody saw another person doing a good deed, they would just scribble on the back of the monopoly bill what the person did and give it to them and just say thank you. So we, and then we would like collect all the bills and we had these periodic recognition ceremonies where we would, you know, just, you know, have read out like what that person did and give them a little rinky dink prize. And it, it was just a really nice way to bring everybody together and so easy to see all the problems. But in this case, to just reflect on the amazing work that happens every day. Right. Yeah. I thought one of the great things about that project was how, um, kind of qualitative or ephemeral the problem statement is, you know, workplace happiness. Yeah. But what you see here in, in using these methods and working with the people and then deciding, oh, well, what's a different way we can kind of spread recognition, people being recognized on, on a more regular basis. You made the, the solution very tangible. And that, that whole notion of figuring out a, an experience that people can, can engage with that moves that you know, moves that challenge forward or takes advantage of that opportunity you want to uh, bring to life in the in the organization. I still remember the pictures of people celebrating and appreciating being appreciated and who doesn't, right? When it's so easy to always just be problem solving or calling out the bad parts. Right. Very human-centered project um, and a probably a solution that has some, some system-wide implications of easier, lighter ways to recognize each other and between peers instead of just top-down as well. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So let's uh, hear about the ways you're applying uh, human-centered methods, engaging your staff differently, and how that's working. Sure. Yeah. So I had, I wanted to talk about um, some of the tools that I use. I think the theme here is going to be creating a safe and sort of creative space to you know for input and idea generation. And so there's this tenet in design thinking about the wisdom of crowds. And as opposed to, again, like, you know, just a few people in the ivory tower solving all the problems, how can you take that out to the populace, out to the people on the ground doing the work and guide them in solving the problems instead of doing it all yourself? And then I think the other, the other tenet that I love from design thinking is as far as ideas go, it's really quantity over quality. So just how can we get as many ideas out on the table as possible and how can we remove judgment from the process of idea generating? So I think at least in medicine, there's so much emphasis on quality of ideas that it can be repressive and it can discourage people from speaking up because they're really worried. Oh, what if my idea is really bad? You know, are people going to judge me for that? So um, again, like the theme for today is going to be the wisdom of crowds and you know idea generation focusing on quantity over quality. Just getting all the ideas out there, and then you know the dust will settle, and you know we'll we'll figure out how to move forward. Nice. One thing that I that I have done just over the past few months, we've had um, some leadership vacancies in our clinics. So we're recruiting for a practice manager and also for a nurse supervisor in one of our clinics. And um, these are really, really important jobs because I think we know the middle managers do so much work to set the tone of the work environment. 
and drive joy and work, drive satisfaction. So making the wrong choice is catastrophic and making the right choice can really drive us forward to make things better. So we have to get this right as we recruit. I've done a lot of reflecting on how we've recruited in the past and it's really not been very human-centered. Um, generally, how we recruit is the system leader who's going to you know, directly supervise the manager will do, be responsible for the recruiting. They'll identify who's going to engage in the interviews. It's usually only a few people. And so what winds up happening is like only a small set of you know, the 120 people in our clinic wind up actually vetting the candidate. So I have been wanting to do things differently. And so what we've been doing as we're recruiting for these two vacancies is we're really trying to, again, use the wisdom of crowds to drive this selection. So one thing that we've done are these like meet and greets where the... And we just did one yesterday, actually, oh. where we have the candidate you know, come. We make sure they overlap during lunch or during everybody's break. And we have an hour where we like just bring cookies and lemonade and ask everybody, like all the staff, as many people who can... Just come by and meet the candidate. I, you know, I tell people, even if it's two minutes, just please come. I really, really want your input. Just you know, shake the person's hand, ask any questions that are on your mind, and take as much time as you want because we really, really want to vet as much as possible. And then we ask everybody who meets the candidate to just fill out like a little slip of paper with like a net promoter score. Like, would you support this candidate on a scale of one to ten? So um, since we've been doing that, it's been amazing. And really, there are a lot of surprising things that have come out of that for me. So I think um, number one is that people are coming. <laughs> um, you know, even though it's on their break, even though they're on lunch, they care enough to show up. They want to bet these people. So we have dozens of people coming. It's actually kind of overwhelming for the candidate to like do these meet and greets. But you know, for me, it's like, this is what the job's going to be like. So yeah, it's actually that's important, for important for you to get a preview. So, so number one, people are coming. Number two, I send out the resumes, you know, a day or two in advance. You know, people are reading the resumes, and we're talking about frontline staff. You know, like medical assistants, clerks, admin assistants. They they read the resumes and then they come to me and they give me feedback on the resumes. And so I just love that. You know, I don't even read resumes all the time. You know, I don't like. I'm not great about my email. And so, but they're doing it. And I think these are all ind indicators of how much they care about this process. And then, you know, they're giving us feedback. And so I think the, the third surprise that has struck me is that there are these candidates that I, when I interview them, they actually seem great to me, or at least I can fantasize or imagine that it would be a good fit. Exactly. Like, oh, well. It must be the solution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, like, well, there was that thing that they said, but that's, that's probably a fluke. Like, I'm sure that it'll be fine. So there are these people that I really would have supported and made an offer to, but the staff are very lukewarm in their net promoter scores much to my surprise. And that really forces me to reflect. And when I see the net promoter scores, then I go and I circulate and I just talk to the staff, like, what did you think? You know, And they give really, really insightful feedback. Like we had a candidate who was applying for the practice manager position, but she had actually been a very high level person, like a VP for many years. And you know, she was pretty far away from being a middle manager. And so the staff pointed out that, you know, whenever they asked her questions, she would give examples from her experience as a VP. And so, you know, th that made them a little skeptical. Like, is she, is she ready to do this, like, you know, on the ground in the weeds type of work if she's been working at such a high level for a long time? And that, it just didn't even dawn on me, even though they're totally right, that mm -hmm. that is how she answered. 
So there are all these insights that I get from people that I never, that I would have totally missed if I had just kind of, you know, kept it this kind of ivory tower type of process where only a few people are vetting. I think the fourth surprise or maybe the fourth, like this is more a source of angst, but you know, we, we brought a lot of candidates and um, turns out the staff were very picky and, (laughs) you know, we just hadn't really found somebody where there was clear consensus. And then I started to get worried, like what, what if this is the wrong process? Like, what if I, what if I'm asking the wrong question? What if like we're not going to get everybody to agree? And this, so I was pretty stressed about that actually. And anyway, just this week we brought somebody who was really like knocked it out of the park. And everybody I talked to was like, she's the one. She seems wow. yeah. And so it turns out we just really needed to keep looking. But I I just feel so much more confident about our selection now that we're tapping into this wisdom of crowds because this person is going to be our staff's boss. Like they really, really need a role in it. And they have amazing insights, things that I never would have picked up on if I hadn't asked. Yeah. What an amazing use of, yeah, wisdom of the crowds, inclusiveness. One thing that I take away from that, not just the four or five amazing insights you've had or, or learning from that. It's some time from everybody, but it's not overwhelming. You're not having 25 people do 45-minute long interviews. Right. Yeah, It's a touch point. And it's like a lot of little touch points, but people are taking enough time to really take a vet from their point of view, giving you that point of view. And then there's a signal and all that yeah. feedback. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. I l- love that. So this is another tool that um, I think I, is just like bread and butter design thinking that I just use all the time that... Folks may already be familiar with, but I think it's just worth mentioning again because it's such a powerful tool. And so I I just wanted to spend a little time talking about affinity clustering. Mm -hmm. So just to review very briefly, affinity clustering is, you know, you take, uh, you know, a stack of stickies and, um, you know, ask a question, you know, how might we, whatever. Um, And everybody, you know, gets a few minutes, one idea per sticky, and they just write as many ideas as they can think of. And then you go kind of, around the room and put all the stickies um, up on the wall and try to cluster them by theme. So that that's affinity clustering. And um, again, I find that just to be an incredibly powerful tool for idea generation. If, you know, how, how can we accomplish this? How might we do that? I think that the things that I love about affinity clustering are, again, getting back to the wisdom of crowds and the quantity over quality. It's a great way of generating quality. I mean, I'm sorry, a grave generating quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wind up getting like a lot, a lot of stickies. And I think, again, you guys can see up here on, on my wall, these are all just ideas from asking a question. So it can actually get a little overwhelming. You, you may be stuck with like 50 or 100 stickies. But I think what's cool is that as you start to cluster by theme, you get to see like a lot of commonality. And then usually just a smaller handful of themes that are bubbling to the surface. So it really gives you a sense of like, where are people on the same page? Like where are the major themes here? And then you also get outliers. Like you may get these, you know, odd little one-offs that you didn't expect. And those are important too. Like it doesn't actually matter if it's just a single sticky in its own little category, because that may be the breakthrough idea. That may be the sort of groundbreaking moment. And so you all, you really, really have to give dignity to every single sticky. So I love affinity clustering for that reason, just because again, it's like, it's a way to get a lot of ideas out there. I also love affinity clustering because it's a way to get ideas out there without judgment. 
because everybody's doing it in the privacy of their own headspace. They're just writing the ideas down before anybody said a word. What, you know, the opposite of affinity clustering in my mind is something called popcorning, where it's like you just, you know, ask a group, oh, what do you guys think of this? And then like people, oh, this is what I think, this is what I think. And so uh, popcorning, I think, is problematic for some re- for several reasons. I think number one is because it tends to favor people who are extroverted, people who have really strong opinions, people who may dominate the conversation. Popcorning is also problematic because it can lead you into groupthink. So your your conversation may be biased by the first one or two ideas that somebody puts out, and then you kind of go down that rabbit hole before you really put all the ideas out on the table. I just love affinity clustering because I think it helps you know people who are quieter uh, or a little more hesitant, people who are afraid of being judged for their ideas, and it also doesn't um, bias the conversation because mm-hmm. you're just just writing them down and putting them up on the board. So um, I use affinity clustering all the time, and so it, that's just like a, a, a crucial tool for me. Would you say you're using it on a weekly basis? Yeah, Every, that's a week? question. Pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Pretty close or yeah, or some form of it. I do think it's a, you know, it's a habit. It's a behavior that you develop. And when it's, you know, just like we might pull out the email tool, because we're going to send an email to somebody to communicate with them. When we are trying to get more ideas, like if we pull that out naturally, rather than, you know, oh, wait for an innovation project to, you know, do the affinity clustering. It's like not at all like that. It's very much a daily or a weekly a way to engage staff, engage colleagues, even something really small. You can just, I just need some, I need some additional thinking on this. And it can be so helpful to your own thinking and moving anything forward, really. Yeah. Nice. And your third example today? Yeah. So full house here. The third example is, um, this is a tool that I use a lot for um, brainstorming and prototyping. And it's a I don't know if there's a name for it, but it's just draw your idea. And so, um, and I'll show you guys some examples in a moment. You know, what we did when we were doing No Good Deed Goes Unnoticed is um, we were trying to understand the medical assistant experience, just like what does a day in the life look like? So we brought, we brought the whole group together and we just passed out markers and paper and we said, okay, everybody just draw a, draw a day in the life of like the worst day at work. What does that look like for you? And um, the idea was to like use a different side of the brain. Like I think it's the right brain, you know, just to like get a lot of creativity. I also love drawing because it taps into like um, a type of empathy that you can't really necessarily capture with words because people are showing you like, you know, what it looks like instead of describing it. And so I'll just show you guys some examples. So this is our medical assistant, Thomas. This is um, his worst day at work. (laughs) This is just so powerful. You can see he's on his hands and knees, like hair on fire. He's saying, why, why, why? Like the phone is ringing off the hook here. And this is just so powerful to be like, listen, like, you know, as a doctor, my life feels really crazy and chaotic at work. But like, that's also true for our medical assistants. Their jobs are so hard and stressful. And then here's just another one. This is our medical assistant, Leslie. I <laughs> see like, you know, she's got arrows all in her body and like this long agenda and um, all these things that she needs to do. So I think um, really that exercise of having people draw their experience was like, so powerful. And so we were able to take those drawings and then empathy map 
was kind of how we process the exercise that we used to process the experience people were telling us about. So I think that that's an example of using drawing, you know, just to capture an experience to get some empathy. And then next week, I, I'm going to lead a session to use drawing for prototyping. So that was like kind of drawing for brainstorming. And But I think you can also use it to prototype because um, I'm going to be working with middle managers in our organization to create like a monthly meeting, like a shared or safe space for the middle managers to just be together and have some peer support and professional development. And so I'm going to bring that group together and ask them, like, draw what that would look like. I don't know what I'm going to discover, but um, I think it'll be really powerful and interesting. And I, and I, I'm, you know, I'm hoping to get something really vivid out of it that I might not be able to get from affinity clustering or popcorning or whatever Mm -hmm. other tool. Like I really want to understand what this looks like. Yeah. Nice. I mean, I think the other thing that the drawing does is once they've drawn it and you did the empathy map, but once they've drawn that, it can be used as a reference for describing the experience and it comes out easier because they well, this represents this and they expound on it and they're able to express themselves yeah. versus everybody just looking at them and saying, what's your experience like? You know, that's a very different way of being able to describe it, uh, having something that's tangible and external that yeah. people can reference. And really validating. I mean, because, you yes. know, we, when we did the drawing with the medical assistants, we asked everybody to just stand up and share out their drawing. And so similar to affinity clustering, we saw these themes bubbling to the surface, like... Kind of shared experiences, and then everybody could see, like, yeah, that's how I feel. I, yeah, so um, I think nice. just validation that comes with that is really powerful too. Awesome, Blake, you're incredible in kind of being able to share this and why it works, and really appreciate you doing this. <laughs>